The Mix Room with Genelec. Our guest today is Brazilian-born multi-Grammy award-winning music engineer Enrico De Paoli, who has engineered albums and concerts for the likes of Ray Charles, Aaron Neville, Alexander O'Neill, Al Giroux, Marcus Miller, as well as engineered for the Rio de Janeiro Carnival and many, many others. Okay, so welcome. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Alice. How are you? I'm really good as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. And whereabouts are you in the world? Well, I'm in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Okay, okay. And what time is it over there? It's uh, 1.08 p.m. Okay. I appreciate how specific be, that was. <laughs> yeah, it should be around lunchtime for most people, but my biological clock is longer than than a 24-hour-a-day clock, so my hours <laughs> and my sleep hours kind of spin, spin around. Mm. So I don't... I don't live on on traditional hours. <laughs> mm, well, that does sound like a, a music engineer, doesn't it? The hours you can. <laughs> so what are you up to at the moment? What's the typical, you know, day in your life looking at the moment? What kind of projects are you working on? What do you find yourself doing? Well, um, as I just mentioned, uh, my biological clock is a little funky. And since... Not only because of the pandemic, because I always had a studio at home since I was a kid, actually. And uh, when you have a studio at home, most people know about this. What happens is that you it becomes your lab, it becomes your research place. And when you're not working, you're studying and you're trying things out. And you mix that with the... Uh, with the uh, crazy biological clock longer than 24 hours per day mm -hmm. what happens is that you know hours spin around and right now um i'm working on a few things uh simultaneously actually i'm producing a singer songwriter from california i'm producing a singer uh from rio brazil i'm co whom i'm co-writing with mm -hmm. um I'm producing a songwriter from Portugal in Europe, who, whom I'm always also co-writing with. And this last night, I was mastering a single for a guy in the state of Rio de Janeiro. Not Rio de Janeiro City, but Rio State. And I do masters for him quite often. He's always been a, stu uh, a student with me here on my uh, private training uh, sessions. And he, he became a friend, and he always sends his, uh, his projects for me to master. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mentioned it's around lunchtime for most uh, Brazilians. But uh, unfortunately, I've been working since yesterday. <laughs> oh, okay. So, what, no sleep? So... Uh, <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I, I actually was going to, but my work stretched a little, and I said, "Well, I might as well, you know, have another coffee and 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 take a shower, and <laughs> it's gonna be better for for my chat." Okay. I'm, uh, what did you ask? Power through. I said you just gone all the way through. Yeah, yeah, but it's not like uh, I was living regular daytime and sleeping at night and this night i didn't sleep uh it's actually been switched over for a few days but it's gonna get fixed in the next couple of days you know I, it's always back and forth 
Okay, good. That sounds very intense. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, for the purposes of our listeners, you're Brazilian born, you're a citizen of Italy, and you've lived in America for years as well. Obviously, you're not there now, but um, that's quite a culture shock and a bit of a mix in between all those places, I can imagine. Yeah, it's funny that um, I think I I was born in Brazil uh, from uh, uh, Italian uh, descendants. And and I think what I have least in my usual uh, style of living is from Brazil, even though I'm, I'm based here now. Um, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. and not straight, but in different moments of life. Now, I lived in the U.S. in my first year of life, although I was born in Brazil. Mm-hmm. I lived there, you know, between a couple of months and when I was one. Then I moved back there when I was 15 and pretty much stayed until I was like almost 22 uh, with one year gap in Brazil where I went to American English spoken school here in Brazil. So there was a point in time that I actually had an accent speaking Portuguese and no accent speaking English. But now I've been so long in Brazil that I developed some accent speaking English and uh, and a little bit of accent speaking Portuguese, depending on on the day. So I kind of lost my mm. my personality. <laughs> <laughs> or are you just a mix of a few personalities? Yeah, I'm a remix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell me a bit about your childhood and growing up then, as you've sort of chopped around and changed a bit with where you've been living and the role of music in your life and what you were listening to then. Well, when I was um, like around eight, uh, I wanted to to take acoustic guitar lessons, and there was a lady in uh, in the neighborhood that she was a teacher, and then you know I took a few lessons with her, and uh, but I don't remember, you know, it, it didn't last too long. Then my brother gave me a little Casio keyboard, which is very like a, a real classic these days called Casio VL tw- VL1 or VL Tone. It, it has actually uh, two two titles, two model names. It's a little calculator-sized uh, little electronic synth. And I was all over that little keyboard, and I used to, to learn all, you know, the uh, radio singles, melodies, you know, by, my, by ear. Mm. And my father was pretty impressed with how I was, you know, going with a, with the a keyboard, the little keyboard. And one year after that, a couple of years after that, uh, we had the f- very first amazingly big music festival in Rio de Janeiro named Rock in Rio. This was 1985, mm-hmm. January of 1985. And all the kids um, on the block, they were asking their parents for like guitars and drums and basses and, you know, all kinds of instruments, rock instruments, you know, because it was the trend at the moment. You know, people wanted to be, you know, kids, all kids wanted to be rock stars because of the Rock and Rio Festival that occupied, you know, everybody's lives in the, in the whole country for that year, for that era. It was a, a, a huge festival. And I... You know, I, I, I told my dad, I said, hey, you know, all my, my friends are putting together uh, rock bands, I, you know, and 
yeah, can we can we you know do a little savings and and try to buy a used electric guitar for Christmas or something? And then my fa my father said, "You were going so well with a little keyboard. Why don't we try to you know to to get a, a little bigger keyboard?" And then I said, uh, "I really wanted to be a rock star, you know. No, I didn't <laughs> yes. want a keyboard." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then my father was really a really good uh, convincing person, so he convinced me really easily, and I got really into the you know the, into the keyboard thing. And at the same time, some kids were grabbing their uh, household stereo system, hi-fi systems, we used to call those, uh, you know, back then, hi-fi uh, stereo systems. Mm -hmm. And they used to, to grab a receiver from their dad, a couple of speakers from their grandparents, you know, all the kids were, you know, gathering those uh, pieces of, of stereo equipment to put together parties. And those were the beginnings of the uh, little tiny sound companies, you know, for the kids were, without knowing, they were building small sound companies for rental purposes. I mean, we didn't have structure for, for making big PA systems for concerts, but we were like, all birthday parties was used to, to hire us for, um, renting our sound equipment, you know, to, to the parties. And I was younger than the guys doing that, but I was like, you know, a, a little partner of theirs. So a couple of years down the road, I was learning my synths and I already had, you know, I was working and saving money and I didn't have any expenses because I used to live with my parents, you know, at the age of 11. And I already had enough savings to buy used uh, sound equipment all for myself. And then I had my own private uh, rental company for sound equipment. So I was a little DJ, you know, at the age of 12 and, and, and on. And I used to bring my synthesizer to the parties and my drum machines. And I used to play those along with the vinyl records. So... You know, uh, playing the, the, the instrument, playing the keyboards and, and doing sound design and, and programming my synth. Uh, at, at that moment, I already had uh, Juno 106, a Roland, and I was the happiest kid, kid in, in the whole city of Rio de Janeiro because bet, yeah. I felt the most amazing kid, have, you know, owning that synthesizer, which was a really high-end pro synth at the age of 13. So I was all over programming that synth and learning to program that synth and learning to program the sound, the timbers, the patches of the uh, songs playing on the radio and the songs that I used to play at the parties on, on the records. And without knowing, I was learning sound design and, you know, the beginning of producing along with uh, some sound engineering because that, that was my very, very beginning of it, you know, uh, hooking up sound equipment, hooking up speakers, learning um, speaker impedance mm -hmm. and, and learning the, the learning sound, how things were supposed to sound. I remember trying different uh, turntable stylus and I remember noticing very clearly that the sound of the cassette tapes wasn't nearly as good as the sound of the records and you know the well 
well, manufactured vinyl records, the thicker ones versus the, the cheaper, thinner ones. And all that thing was building up a database of quality timber, you know, in my mind without without myself being aware of it. Mm. And and then, you know, just to, so I don't take so much of, you know, of the, of your, of, of the chat with, with a very far away background. Um, I'll, I'll just fast forward the story a little bit. Uh, I had bands and, you know, I, I, I was keyboard players in my bands and, and I always wanted to record the rehearsals. And I used to bring, you know, my dad's uh, reel-to-reel uh, recorder to the rehearsals. And I didn't want to really rehearse. I just wanted to record the band playing. And I was always kicked out of the band because they, they wanted to rehearse to play little showcases. And I never wanted to rehearse. I said, no, no, let's just record. I brought, you know, I brought the recorder. They said, no, we need to play live. I said, no, no, let's record. And then I ended up being kicked out of the bands. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> because I always wanted to record. Mm. And and then uh, I moved to South Carolina when I was 15. I wanted to find a way. Back then, this was middle of the 80s, and uh, Brazil's economy was closed for importations, which was a really bad phase for uh, the country, for technology because uh, the country was closed down for any imports because they thought it was going to boost uh, local um, industries, you know, to, to wrong, wrong thinking, you mm. know, they thought not having competition was going to be good for the local industries because they were going to improve their sales. But, you know, we, we all know by now that competition is, is what, moves us forward yes and not and and, and so the uh, local industry was really bad and importing anything was pretty much impossible or really really expensive so i i learned from that that i needed to get out of here and go to america because everything seemed so much more accessible in the united states mm. and well i was 12, 13, 14, and I didn't have a way to just run away to a different country by myself at that age. So I found a way to go live in, in the USA via being an exchange student. It was the only way I could find to, you know, to make viable moving to, to another country at the age I was at. So I became an exchange student and I ended up going to live in a in, with a family in the interior of South Carolina. It was an amazing experience. Uh, I did have all the access I wanted, I, although I was not in a big town. I was not in Manhattan or L.A. or mm. anywhere like you know that big. But with all the structure uh, the U.S. already had back then, you know the mail order and uh, magazine subscriptions, and you know, I, it was a godsend to me. You know, I could, I could just buy gear at very low uh, uh, costs, mm. and 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 you know, uh, keep on my growth. So I did that, and by living that uh, in South Carolina that year, 
I came to realize that I needed to live there forever. So okay. I had to 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 come back to Brazil because the the uh, the exchange student program was over after a year, after a year. So when I came back to Brazil, I enrolled my senior year in high school in on into an, an American school, a high an American high school program in in Rio, because I felt that would keep me keep me linked to the American uh, culture, and that would be an easy bridge back to the U.S. once I had graduated from high school, which was exactly what happened. Good. So I ended up uh, graduating from high school and moving back to, to, to the U.S., and this was to Los Angeles this time, where I went to study uh, in a music school. And this was the, the very... Um, uh the the point of decision when i was visiting this i went to uh to grove school of music which was a very known school back in the uh, 80s and, and early 90s and it was a multi teaching multi learning school multi multi program school mm -hmm. they 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 taught all sorts of instruments uh movie sound scoring um classical arrangement jazz piano and music production and music engineering so as i was visiting the school to to enroll the uh, the, the 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 host who was uh you know bringing me me around the school to, to show me the whole campus she would open a bunch of uh, doors and, and then she would say, hey, this is our studio uh, F, you know, it's it's a four-track studio. And then, you know, there was a bunch of analog pieces of gear and a little recording console and, and a four-track reel-to-reel machine and, and compressors and reverbs. And then she would, you know, go around school with me and then she would open another, another studio door and, oh, this is our studio uh, E, you know, uh, it's an A-track studio. And then she would go on and then until she reaches uh, stu Studio B, which was a 24-track, two-inch studio um, with a bigger mixing console mm -hmm. and two very large uh, recording rooms, playing rooms that could fit an orchestra, uh, a grand piano. And it, it was a very well-implemented and structured school. And I was out. I was I was flipping, you know, with with excitement, seeing all the all those studios that I until then I only saw in magazines, right? So, but I was there to enroll to become a keyboard player. I went there to become a keyboard player. Nothing related to sound. I wanted to learn keyboards and synthesizers. And and then when she was showing me all those those uh, studios, I. All of a sudden, I asked her, hey, am I going to have access to these studios? Can I use these studios whenever I want? And she said, no, unfortunately not. You know, the studios are only available to the uh, recording engineering uh, students mm -hmm. and uh, music production students. I said, no, 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 no. No, that can't be. I mean, I, I need to have access to these studios. <laughs> yeah. And she said... No, but, you know, these are only if, if the uh, recording engineers or the pr uh, music producer, uh, music production stu uh, students uh, invite you to become a player in their sessions. I said, I don't know what to say. You know, I, I, I came here to learn music 
but I I'm I need to be able to to work on these studio, in these studios. And then she said, "Well, we have a duo program. You can learn. You can take a, a duo a duo uh, academic program, which will be uh, recording engineering slash uh, music production and keyboard musicianship." I said, "Let's do that." And then that moment, I became the that moment became the my the the beginning of the my future as a recording engineer engineer which was not until then in my plans wow what a story <laughs> incredible <laughs> and then i obviously it worked out which is great after everything that you worked for because um we must talk about your work with ray child ray, sorry ray charles beg your pardon on the song my world so what a fantastic, um, legendary artist to work with. So what was that like? Well, uh, first, uh, uh, my apologies to, you know, go on and speak so so long without uh, pausing. No need to apologize. You, it's nice to hear the story. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Alice. Well, uh, just one thing before before we get to the Ray Charles, which is, uh, it, it's, uh, it's needed to say. Mm-hmm. I... I when I went back to the States to, to study music, was a bad moment financially uh, mm. for my parents. Oh, okay. And my father said, hey, you just came from, you know, from being an exchange student. You want to go back to the United States. And if you, if, you, if you run through any financial emergency there, I'm not going to be able to help you. So maybe it's not a good idea. You know, maybe, maybe you want to do that later. I said okay. no, no, no. I, I, you know, I can't, I can't wait. You know, and and I'm sure everything is going to be all right. You know, I'll, 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 I'll work. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. So I went at the age of 17, and and it was really tough. You know, I I couldn't find any any paying job, any any anything. So I was actually getting pretty nervous and and worried that I would have to call home and ask for help because I promised, you know, that wouldn't help, that wouldn't happen. And I, I, uh, I worked, you know, um, a friend of mine from school lended me his job taking care of uh, uh, the parking lot of the school, but it was not a forever job, right? I mean, not even, not even a steady job. I would only work there when he wasn't working. So it was just like a little help. I ended up working with telemarketing, which was horrendous. I was not talented at all for telemarketing, and I was fired in the in the uh, before the oh, first no. week ended. It wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be, which is really good. Um, and I really wanted a job at a music store. That that sold a bunch of synthesizers, samplers, and uh, recording equipment. And the guy that was the manager there, he couldn't stand seeing me walking into the store and asking for a job every week anymore. Every week I would, you know, walk in and I would just come straight to his desk and I would say, "Hey, sir, please hire me. You know, you're gonna love my work. You know, I really enjoy." Being around all this gear, you got, you know, I, I, I'm going to be a great salesperson. And then one day he said, "No, no, you can't because you came here to go to school. You won't have time." And and well, 
And then one day I said, look, I'll work seven days a week, nonstop, for the whole year. You guys take all the days off you want. I'll take care of the store. He said, no, you, you, you won't handle that. I said, I will. So he gave me the job. He gave me the job. He was really tough on me. And we ended up becoming great friends, great friends. He's still my my great friend on Facebook. When I come to the U.S., sometimes we meet. And, well, the reason I'm saying that, uh, the the job at this music store, is because we were trained by all the the, uh, sales rep from all the uh, brands, from Roland, from Akai, from Korg, from Yamaha. And every day there was somebody at the store training the salespeople. And I was really, really excited and interested to learn all that stuff. And what happened was that when I went back to school, every day when I went to school, I ended up becoming really, really good friends with the teachers. Because I learned from them, but they also came to the store to learn the latest pieces of of equipment from me. So it became an amazing exchange, you know, because they were the teachers. I was just like a a kid. I was 17. Yeah, absolutely. But they were really close to me because because of all my excitement and my interest in, in learning and because they always wanted to see, you know, the the newest and the latest of what was coming out. And there was not there was no YouTube, there was not there was no Google, no internet. So they had to come to the stores and speak to somebody of what was, you know, being released and the the the, the, the new stuff coming out. And that, that person was me. So I developed a really, really great friendship with all the teachers. And when when I graduated, um, it was funny that I came to uh, the chief uh, professor, the chief, uh, the head professor. Uh, teacher for the uh, recording engineering and production program that I attend that I attended and I said uh Duke and he's also a great friend we still have contact to this day I mean this this I'm talking about this was 1991 I'm talking about 30 years ago and we're still friends I said Duke so I I graduated you know I don't want to go back to work in a music store I really want to get into the business can you help me get a job in a big studio? And so he said, yeah, well, first thing that, you know, that shows up, uh, I'll remember you. And uh, if anything happens, I'll, I'll call you up. I said, okay. So that later that week he calls me and he said, hey, can you come to the school so we can talk? So I came to school and he said, hey, uh, there's this guy. He owns one of the biggest studios in town. And this studio is called um, Skip Sailor, which is actually his name. And he's looking for a runner. You know, a runner is not someone who's going to even touch the equipment. I mean, you're going to touch the coffee machine, the telephone, (laughs) and that's pretty much it, Mm -hmm. you know. And you're going to have to work your way, you know, up there and show them you're, you're interested and you're a good learner. I said, I'm in, you know. And then he said, look, this studio is a really good studio. Everybody has recorded there. Everybody. I mean, really big records. Van Halen, you know, Madonna, Quincy Jones, you name it, Michael Jackson, everybody. But he is one of the rare cases in town 
that the studio has no manager. He is the manager. The owner is the manager. And he is really, really tough on people. You know, students that have worked there before, they, they didn't handle it. They couldn't stand it. I said, no, 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 I'm different. You know, I can handle anything, Duke. You just get me in there. Get me in there. I can handle anything. I went there. I got the job. By the end of the week, I realized Duke was right. Oh. <laughs> Duke was right. Okay. Skip Sailor was really, really tough. I mean, he was not an easy person to deal with at all. We were always wrong. We, we were, no matter what, what I was doing, I was always doing something either wrong or out of time or less than expected. Always, yep. always. <laughs> I know, yeah, I know how that is. <laughs> oh no, so what did you do? And, and, and he would always arrive at that moment. I was just in between two tasks and, and he, he would always think I was doing nothing all day long. You know, it was it was hell. It was hell. So I couldn't I could I couldn't I mean my life was miserable. I couldn't stand going to that place anymore, no matter who recorded there. And and I didn't know what to do. You know, I really didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I went back to telemarketing, if I went back to music store. I didn't know what what I had, you know, to decide. So I went back to the school and I had another conversation with Duke. I said, Duke, I came here for two reasons. First one is to thank you for the job you got me. I mean, the studio is amazing. The clients are amazing. The records done there are out of this world. The equipment is outrageous. Everything is, is speechless. And and he goes, cool. Well, I'm glad you like it. And and what is the second reason that brings you here? I said, well, the second reason is if by any chance you have another job for me, I'll take it. Mm. He goes, well, you just said you love that studio. And I said, no, I didn't say I love the studio. I, lo- I love the studio, but I can't stand going there. And then he he cracked laughing at me. He said, I told you. I told you. <laughs> tried to warn I knew you, you would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, I left my meeting with Duke thinking Duke would never, ever pick up a call from me anymore because he got me a job at one of the biggest studios in town. You know, the school had like hundreds of kids wanting a, wanting a job. Duke gets me a job and I come back there and I tell him I want a new job, you know, and I said, Duke's never going to even look at my face anymore. I was wrong again. And uh, three days later, I receive a call in the middle of the night, uh, not in the middle of the night. I, I come back from the studio, from my job, from my miserable job. And I get home like at 3.30 a.m. and there was a message in my machine. There was no cell phones then. I mean, not for me. Maybe big record producers already had them, but I didn't. Uh, And so there was a message in my machine from a guy named Steve Lindsay. And he was a producer in town. 
And he left a message in my machine saying that he called up the school looking for somebody that was a keyboard player that was into synths and samplers and that was also a recording engineer. He needed that mix of a person to be his assistant, his uh, personal assistant, and not a not a studio uh, uh, worker, but you know uh, somebody to work next to a producer. So I said, "Well, that sounds like that sounds like something exciting, you know." So the message said for me to return his call no matter what time it was, and so I did. And he picked up the call. It was like almost 4 a.m. And we talked and we talked. And he said, when can you come to my studio to, you know, to meet with me and to, uh, so we can talk? He said, well, tomorrow. So I come to his studio. It was a room in, on the third floor of the Village Recorder, uh, a classic, uh, iconic recording studio in L.A., which survives it's in a Masonic, in a Masonic temple in uh, West LA, uh, the Village Recorder. It's a, an amazing historical recording studio in in the world of recording. Um, so Steve had a room on the third floor. It was not a big room, but it had fifty-four synths and samplers and drum machines, and, and I counted and. When I walked into that place, I felt I was, I felt I had died and went straight to heaven. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I said, man, I never saw, not even at a music store, I never saw so many classic, amazing and modern and everything synths and samplers gathered and plugged in and ready to, you know, all everything running at the same time. And I, I didn't even let Steve speak. I was like, "Man, you have this, you have that, you have the Roland D550O, you have the Moog, you have you have the Akai, you have all that. Oh, I love that, and I love this, and I love that, and I love the sound of this and the sound of that." And he was like really impressed with my excitement because because it was so real that yeah. you know if I was in his place, I was probably noticed what he noticed from me. And he said, "Well, I want you to." I want to to try working with you. When can when can you start? So I went back to 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 Skip Sailor and I said I had gotten a new job that I would need to uh, give my um, notice of of uh, thirty day notice. I don't remember how they call it there. I think it's thirty day notice when you when you tell they tell them you you want to leave the job. Yeah, yeah. So you don't so you don't leave you know in this all of a sudden. And and then they asked me why I wanted to leave. I said I was going to go work with a producer, and and they were pretty impressed because at that studio, really the only piece of gear I could touch was the microwave oven and the uh, coffee machine. Um, and then they wanted to give me a, a a promotion there. They wanted to you know, talk me into staying and, and but at the same time they said, no, you have a great opportunity. Just go. It's going to be good for you. You know, it's going to be really good for you. And well, I, I thought I was never going to see uh, skip again. And, and I went to work with Steve and it was great. And I worked with Steve for like, I mean, it was 
night and day. Steve gave me the keys for the room, for the studio. And he said, you know, I want you to come here, live here, spend as much time as you want here. Bring anyone you want inside here. Record anyone here. Use all the gear you want. Ask me anything. If you you want me to hire somebody to teach you things, you know, I'll hire somebody to teach you things. And it was never necessary because I was really in-depth in that studio. I was like... I was like, that studio was my girlfriend. I was in love with the studio. <laughs> yeah. So, so three months down the line, now comes the answer to your question about Ray Charles. Aha, uh-huh, back to Ray Charles. Three, okay. Three, three months down the line, Steve comes to me and said, "Hey, uh, I'm pretty uh, happy working with you." And in fact, it was really cool because. I never asked for a raise or anything like that. I was so excited with the work and with all I was all that was happening to my life. Um, I thought I knew what was happening to my life, but I still had no idea the the depth of everything that was really happening to my life. But I, even without knowing, without sensing, I was already excited enough of of all I was going through. So Steve, every week he came to me and he said, look, from Monday on, you know, you just multiply your hours by a different rate. He would, every week he would raise me every week without me ever asking. And, and he he was always very happy with me. He was very tough too, you know, very, very tough, but, but he was very, very happy with, with where where I was going. So so three months down the line, he comes and he says, hey, I'm going to rent my room out to a different producer who happens to be the biggest producer of all time. And that guy taught me everything. And he is the producer who has the most amount, number one singles with uh, different artists in history. And his name is Richard Perry. And he's going to produce, I mean, he's worked with everybody. You know, he's worked with uh, with with Motown. He's worked with, with uh, Barbara Streisand. Uh, he, he, he's, he's big. And he's going to be producing Ray Charles. And all the synths, it's going to be a very electronic-based uh, uh, project. And all the synths are going to be programmed here. Uh, I'm not going to be in the studio. You know, it's going to be him and whoever he brings in. Sometimes he may hire me. That, that was Steve saying to me, right? So Steve said, sometimes he may hire me, but, you know, I just want to know if you're comfortable with the studio, if, if I can count on you, because I want to include you in the room. They're going to pay me the room for the room. I'm going to pay your rate. And, and you're going to be part of the deal I'm going to rent out with him. You're going to be the studio guy. Can you handle that? I said, yeah. You know, I was always ready. I was always, even when I wasn't, I, I always thought I was. <laughs> I always thought I was. And so, so I'm, I started working with Richard Perry. He was very, very serious. And, and 
it was very, very intense, very intense, very intense. I remember every moment of that of 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 all those days. And it, they were long days. We were I worked on that project for over a year, like one and a half year, I think. Uh, and the, when I when I joined in when the, when uh, uh, Richard Perry brought the, the, the Ray Charles record to Steve's room with me, uh, the project has had already begun. So all like the basic tracks were already laid, you know the, the the map the structures of the tracks were already laid to tape. Everything was tape. I mean computers didn't record any audio back then. Computers only recorded MIDI information, and we had to sync the. Uh, the computers to a tape machine always. And all the synths would play in real time. You know, nothing was, no, no sound was ever recorded onto, onto a computer. Um, so, so it was very, very deep learning experience. I mean, I was working next to very, very talented programmers, musicians, and Synthesists and sound designers and drum programmers, uh, beat makers, which didn't have this name back then, um, and sound engineers. So every day, Richard would bring a different engineer to the studio. You know, he would alternate between many, many engineers. One day, he calls me at home on a Sunday, and he says, uh, "Rico, let's." cancel the recording today because the engineer who was supposed to come work with us, he's not going to make it. So we don't have an engineer today. So let's just not go. I said, no, let's go. Let's go. He said, uh, how can we go to the studio without an engineer? I mean, it's going to be you and me there. I said, that's enough. We can do you know many things together. And he Then he said, are you sure? I said, I'm totally positive. Let's go to the studio. I'm sure we can, you know, find a lot of things that have to be done. We, I mean, we can cover them. So he, this was like 10 a.m. when he calls me to, to cancel the recording day. And then he said, well, let's just go in the later afternoon then. Let's, let's make it, you know, let's call it like 5 o'clock there, 5 p.m. I said, whatever, whatever works for you, mm -hmm. I'll be there. So... I hang up the phone, I hop in the shower, and I drive to the studio. So I get to the studio before midday, and then I align the tape machine, and I put on a tape, a, a two-inch tape, that was um, uh, a song by Prince that was on a Pepsi commercial. So the song was only 30 seconds long. And Richard wanted to make a, a, a full song out of that song, out of those 30 seconds, for Ray Charles to, uh, to have on the record, on the album. So I put that tape onto the tape machine, and I start making uh, an arrangement. Uh, uh, drums and clavinet and, and moog bass and you know, samples and loops. And I start working on a bunch of ideas. From you know noon until like five fifteen, when Richard walk, walks into the studio. So when he walks in, he goes, "Oh, oh, I'm a bit late. I'm fifteen minutes late. Are you be, have you been here too long?" I said, "No, no, no, not too long. You know, I'm just relax. I'm fine." 
So he he grabs, you know, a soft drink and he sits down and he he slows down from, you know, his rushing uh, uh, to get to the studio and and then without announcing, I just hit play on the tape machine and the, the, the computer starts following, the samplers and the synths start following and the arrangement I was working on starts playing. And he goes, what's that? Oh, 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 it's the Prince song. Oh, wh what are those drums? Wh those drums weren't there before. Wh what's that bass? Wh who, who did all of this? And then I go, no, I was just working on some, I was playing around, working on some ideas. Then he goes, you you do all that? Can you do that? I said, uh, it was an experiment, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I, I was, I was, trying different you know attempts and he goes i love that let's let, let's work on that on on that on that you know on that bass and then then we spent like hours working on the bass and he goes let let's hear some more kick drums and then we spent 13 hours working on kick drums wow I'll never forget 13? 13 hours straight working on kick drums and i i had already been there five hours before he arrived so we were there. I was there for almost 24 hours. And the next day I come to the studio and there was nobody else. It was just him and I. And the next day, the same thing. And the next day, the same thing. So we became a team working together. We became really, really close. And again, another blessing in my life, you know, without I mean, I was very young. I didn't have a manager. I mean, I was just a kid getting out of school, being, you know, lucky enough to become an assistant to a, a, a studio owner and producer. So, I mean, I I wasn't in a position of, like, negotiating my, my programming and co-producing rates, but they were pretty kind because instead of Steve... Uh, paying me every week like he was, uh, Warner Brothers started, you know, sending me checks. And and comparing to what I was making be until then, mm -hmm. they were hefty checks. Nice. Um, and I was very thankful. And, and again, the uh, checks would, I don't know if, I don't remember if every week, but they would increase in, in amount. You know, it was, it was always very good payment. And... And I was so excited about the project that, I mean, I wasn't even paying attention to the payment, but the payment was more nice than team. enough for, yeah. for, for what I was, uh, for the lifestyle I was having. Mm. Absolutely. And, um, well, so I became uh Almost a co-producer. I mean, uh, I was not uh, hired to be a co-producer on that record. If it was today doing what I did, I sure would would be a co-producer. But my my titles on that album is uh, recording engineer, rec uh, also assistant engineer on some tracks. The tracks before you know the magic day came. Uh, so assistant engineer, recording engineer. And synth programmer and, and drum programmer. And after that track, after work on 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 working on that project, 
all the doors in LA open to me because it was such a big, you know, uh, an expected, uh, awaited album by the whole industry that everybody knew that you know a young guy was was on the on the album and and that young guy was me and this was a very very this was my my big break and i'll tell you just to 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 finally give the the word back to you <laughs> uh i never realized how big what happening what was happening to my life mm. was until this was 1992 right until 2008 when i watched the movie ray so like 16 years later right if no yeah uh, 16 years later if my math is correct um when i watched that movie that i realized how big being on a Ray Charles album at the age of 18. Oh, yeah. Is to somebody. Mm. An amazing achievement, actually, when you think about it. You were so young and to work with such a star um, must have been absolutely incredible. And of course, you went on to win Grammys with other artists. So it clearly paid off with your early start. And um, so you created your private mixing and mastering room in 2005. And um, you do a lot of your work from there. And I'm guessing you still do, unless this was in a different country but um obviously your kit is super important i know you're a genelec fan you've been using them for a long long time so how long have you been using those for well um so i stayed in la in la until 94 and i came to brazil and i had a a, a synth room pretty much based on what steve had in in la you know that with a, a bunch of synths and recording and i was doing a bunch of programming and arranging. And I was the synth guy here also. Uh, and then one artist hired me to to engineer an acoustic session for him, who happens to be a really big artist in Brazil, a legendary artist named Javan. So I went to, rec- to, to engineer that track. And... No, actually, before engineering for him, I said, well, it's going to be a, a pretty important acoustic recording session. I'm going to go to, you know, I had some money saved and I had some spare time. So I went to L.A. and I invested in some high-end uh, EQs and compressors and preamps and a pair of speakers. And those speakers were Genelex. 1030s. This was 1996. So I came back from LA with these, uh, with, with uh, these new uh, pieces of gear, and I went to uh, to do the recording session with uh, Javan. It's funny that I wasn't used to the Genelex, but I became used to them like instantly. You know, the sound that I heard from those 1030s, they were instant instantly natural to me you know i a lot of people have to get used to to the speakers which i don't really agree with i I don't think there's a right speaker set for everybody you know and i think that right speaker is the one that you don't have to compensate 
You don't have to listen to something. Oh no, people, somebody told me this is flat and I got to use this for the studio because it's the correct speaker. I, I don't really believe that. And I don't even believe the speaker needs to be flat because flat is not really pleasant sounding. I think the correct speaker is the speaker that you listen to a lot of music you enjoy and songs that you've listened for many years in your life. When you listen to those songs on those speakers, they sound amazing to you. They sound correct to your ears. Those are the, the, are the correct speakers to you because when you make your music, your mixes sound correct to, the, to, to your ears on those speakers, you won't have to do any compensation. Mm. So it's going to translate correctly. I'm using the word correct many times on purpose because there's, <laughs> there's no such thing as a, as a correct speaker mm. or even as a correct mix. But a correct mix is something that sounds as intended uh, averagely in most places it's they always going going to sound different you know if you if you listen to one mix in a in a muffled uh, speaker system the mix is going to sound more muffled if you listen to that same mix in a brighter speaker system the mix is going to sound brighter and 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 the average must be as the engineer and producer intended intended the mix to sound and most specifically when you finish listening to another song and your song, your mix starts playing, the translation, the transition from one song to your song must be satisfying. Absolutely. Sorry, I thought you were pausing there. Um, that's great to know that you've been using them for so long and that you're, you you clearly rely on them and just know that sound secondhand. I was going to say correct there, but maybe <laughs> as you said, it's not the right <laughs> word. But yeah, that's great to know they've been so integral in your work. Yeah, so, so I ended up... Uh, being hired for the whole album and then it was another big turn in my career javan asked me if i wanted to come mix live concerts with him right you know he was always talking about you know inviting me for for his live tour uh he was mentioning that daily and i always thought he was joking with me because it's almost like inviting a formula one racer pilot to uh, driver to to run the uh, Paris Dakar, you know, it's like it's like a, a whole different racing style, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the uh, last day of the recording, he goes, "So you want to join the the crew and 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 go mix, you know, my live tour?" I said, "I don't know how to mix live tours. I never mixed a concert. I mean, I've I, I mixed here and there, a couple of little bars for friends." But never, you know, a big PA system like a, an arena or a gymnasium. And then he said something that was a checkmate to me. He said, I'm willing to bring you aboard and to have you learn during my tour if you bring the years that gave me the sound I have on this record now. <laughs> wow. I said, well, that's flattering. <laughs> that's pretty flattering. But I was missing the U.S. so much, so badly, and I was getting ready to move back to the U.S. And then I said, give me a week to think, please. I mean, I'm not turning down your your honorable invitation. I mean, I was get, getting ready to move back to the U.S., and 
and then you show up with this invitation, with this serious, ultra-serious invitation. I need to really plan my life. So I ended up deciding to stay and to go on tour with him. And I'll tell you that was the most intelligent and right, right decision I ever made. Because when you work in the studio, you spend hours, days, months, sometimes even years mixing a record, working on a record on the same songs over and over and over without knowing if the public is going to like it or not. Because you're in the studio by yourself or with another musician or with a producer or being the producer with a team, but never with a bunch of listeners. But when you're mixing live, you are running that console in the middle of the crowd and you can watch people's faces mm. of excitement or not. And that's when you really learn, one, to mix for the crowd. You start learning tricks and moves and, 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 and licks on the console, on writing, you know, the band that drive the audience. And you start to learning to mix fast because you have to mix the song as it goes. There's no rewind, right? So each song is mixed during the length of the song. Mm -hmm. and then you're yeah. on to the next song. So it was the best thing I ever done was to learn to mix concerts. Oh, fantastic. That, that's when I really learned to mix in the studio. So I started working with the Genelex 1030s in 1996. And in 2004, I always had a home studio. Always, always, always. Even when I was a kid, I had like my little pieces of gear in my bedroom. But in by 2004, I wanted to just cool down and, and stop traveling. And, and the big studio era was coming to... We didn't know if it was coming to an end or diminishing its power. And people were starting to... to be able to to have a little more powerful home studios because of technology you know you didn't you didn't need uh half a million dollar consoles and you know big maintenance tape machines and you know with a good computer a few interfaces a good uh, the speakers are becoming a lot better because until the early 80s we had you know ns10s you know the little yamahas that didn't sound you know they sounded good as as leveling reference for to know if the snare was too loud and the vocals were in the mix, but they were not good for coming, you know, uh, coming together with great sounding mixes all by themselves. You needed, you know, big speakers, but this, this the speaker technology had evolved, and and. I knew that with a com good computer and a good Pro Tools system and my 1030As, I was pretty much able to to mix in you know at home. And then uh, 5.1 Dolby uh, Surround was getting pretty big, and I decided I was going to mix. Uh, I was going to put together a, a, a surround studio mixing studio at home, and I was going gonna start working you know, privately for mm. record companies and artists and the likes and the like. So 
when I then I decided, you know, that I I spent a few months deciding what what speaker system to get for my 5.1 system. So I tried uh, the newer Genelex uh, 8000 series and the older ones, the, 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 the bigger sizes, the uh, 1031s, and and I did all sorts of combinations. You know, I already had, knew a lot of people in the business, and I was lucky enough to have people uh, lending me all sorts of speakers so I could keep them in the studio and, and spend, you know, months trying them out, trying them out and comparing them until I decided to to get, you know, the uh, not the later ones, the 8000 series, but the uh, the one size up from my 1030s, which are the 1031s. In fact, when, when, when I was going to buy them, they were being already phased off. They were not being manufactured anymore, right when I decided I wanted them. But Genelec was still making the home theater version of them, mm. which is called the uh, HT-208s, uh, which is the same exact speaker as the uh, 1031s. But they were more geared towards uh, high-end uh, home theater systems. But they use the same components, same sizes, same everything, with a couple of differences in the back, uh, connectivity, and uh, but the sound and the speakers pretty much the same speaker. So I bought those, and I bought the subwoofer, the uh, seventy seventy. And so I've had the ten uh, thirties, as I mentioned, since nineteen ninety six for twenty five years now, over twenty five years, wow. and in, from two thousand four on which has been 17 years I've been using the, uh, I moved my, my, my 1030s to the rear and I use the 1031s or the HT 208s to on the front, in the front with the sub. And these, uh, this has been my, uh, my general X system for 25 slash 17 years every day. Wow. Okay, it's been with you for a long time then, for a lot of records. A lot, oh, pretty much all my rec, all my, aside from the Ray Charles era, aside from the LA era, pretty much since I've been uh, in Brazil. And, I, and I've, I've lived in the US twice after that again, back and forth. But, you know, the speaker's always with me. Well, it's good to know you've got a little faithful companion or two there, always ready to crack on with your music and you know how it's going to sound. So that's fantastic to hear you've been working with them so long and they've been so integral into your music uh, for over the last 25 years. Incredible, really. So, um, uh, may, may I just add one final touch to 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 wrap up the uh, the, the monitoring uh, yes, of uh, course. subject we're talking about? So when, when I put together my 5.1 system, uh, my idea was just to mix records and DVDs, not to master. I always, I always sent my masters out to mastering engineers. I mean, I didn't send them. I always brought the masters, uh, the mixes with me to mastering studios to be there with them while they mastered my mixes here and in the United States. But when I installed my 5.1 uh, Genelec system, they sounded so amazing, so amazing that I thought, man, it's going to be hard to, to bring my mixes to, different, to a different studio because they're never going to sound as good as mine. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm enjoying the sound of my studio so much that 
how am I going to listen to these mixes elsewhere and make any decision on the master? Mm. So I said, well, I got to learn how to master. So I started a different road of deeply studying mastering from 2004 on. And that has led me to where I am now, which is mixing, mastering. Uh, Actually, I've been mastering for 17 years since then. And I was lucky to, to win a Grammy for recording, mixing, and mastering, and producing uh, Javan's album. And, and, uh, and I was also awarded uh, a couple of times as a mastering engineer uh, here in, in Brazil. And I'm back to producing because uh, I was always so tied to, uh, to my roots in synthesizers that I'm, I'm back to making arrangements and producing uh, from a couple of years back to, to now. Okay, wonderful. It's nice to know you've got such a variation of work there. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually, uh, I know this is not for everybody. Some people enjoy covering more bases. Some people enjoy being more specialized. But uh, it's it's worked for me to, you know, to to work on different areas that I feel comfortable and that I have passion for. Thank you so much for joining us today, Enrico, to talk about your, you know, your music career, your beginnings, you know, your incredible work that you've done and probably will continue to do. So thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure, Alice. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.